Uh, we all know what tomorrow is. Everybody knows what tomorrow is. Let's say it on the count of three. One, two, three. Reformation Day. What? What did y'all say? Oh, yes. Well, tomorrow is Halloween, obviously. That's great. But um, tomorrow is, maybe you don't know this, if you know a little bit about church history. Who knew tomorrow was Reformation Day? Seriously. Okay, a couple of y'all. Um, in church history, tomorrow is Reformation Day. Tomorrow is the day that um, just as Christians, we kind of look back over the course of history and we see that in 1517, 505 years ago tomorrow, an uh, angry monk named Martin Luther nailed onto the doors of a church these 95 statements, these 95, what we call 95 theses about the gospel of Jesus Christ that forever really uh, changed the world. I'm, and seriously, the fact that we are here today, the fact that we know the gospel, the fact that you have a Bible in your hand is due in large part to a man named Martin Luther 505 years ago. The story goes that um, in this time that the Catholic Church really dominated the Western world, it had for hundreds of years, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Emperor and his Pope and their bishops and all of these people kind of dominated the world and the religious landscape of everything. And the way that that looked was that they had basically accumulated all the power and all the authority in the church. And that didn't just mean that they, they were in charge, it also meant that they were really the only ones who knew scripture because scriptures were by and large only in Latin or the Greek, you know, original or the Hebrew originals, but Latin. And if you couldn't read Latin, you couldn't read your Bible, right? And so the Roman Catholic Church kind of was able to take that authority that they had because they were able to read scripture and abuse and twist and turn the truth in order to control the people and get from them what they wanted, uh, namely money. And they had turned what Jesus and the apostles intended to be the church of Jesus Christ into a money-making monstrosity. And the way that they would do this was that they would, they would invite you to come. And when you would come, they would offer you an opportunity to be saved, which is what we're doing here today. But here's how they would do it. They would say, give us the right amount of money and you can be saved. They would sell these things called indulgences. And the indulgences would allow you to have assurance that you had salvation. And not only you, but if you paid the right amount of money, you could actually assure that those who had died before you, who you loved, could be saved. And do you see how this might create in a person a willingness to give to them all of your money, to, to let go of everything that you had, to go and to just beg and, and plead. And if you could scrape up any little bit of money that you possibly had and the richer you were, the better off you were. But the poor people maybe just give whatever they had so that they could hopefully be saved. Well, in that, there was a man named Martin Luther who saw this going on. He was, a, he was a lawyer and a scholar turned monk and theologian who was just desperate to see what the scriptures actually said. And he poured over the scriptures, poured over the scriptures, read them in Latin, read them in Greek, and came to find out that maybe this wasn't exactly the way that Jesus taught salvation would happen. Maybe it wasn't through indulgences and the rich versus the poor. Maybe it was faith, I don't know, in Jesus. And Martin Luther began to believe this and began to see that something was different in the scriptures than what they were seeing in the Catholic church. Something was not the same. Something wasn't right here. And so on that day, October 31st, 1517, this monk, Martin Luther, walked up to the doors of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, 
and he nailed onto those doors his 95 theses that stated 95 statements that just shared this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. It's about faith in Jesus. It's about justification by faith in him and him alone, according to scripture alone. And then he began to uh, translate scriptures into German for the common people to read all these sorts of things. Just an amazing moment of, for him, desperate faith. And that's kind of the, the phrase I want us to hold on to this morning is this idea of desperate faith, being desperate just to see God move, just to see God work. I don't believe that Martin Luther knew what was gonna happen when he nailed that document onto those doors. He didn't know how it was gonna spread across the countryside. He didn't know how it was gonna change the world and lead to what we now call a Protestant Reformation. All of us in this room, we're not Catholic, so we are Protestant. That's because of what Martin Luther did that day, that we protested, Protestant, that we protested against what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching, this false gospel, this false doctrine. So I don't know if he knew that, but I know that he just simply had a faith that was desperate. And that's exactly what we see in the story for this morning. And I want you just to hold on to that word, desperate. And we see this, this woman who comes to Jesus in her moment of greatest need. I just wonder how many of us today are desperate, just desperate to see Jesus and maybe that means something different than what you think it means right now, but let's talk about it. So in, in Mark chapter five, starting in verse 21, I'm just gonna read it quickly again. It says this, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, it's the, the Sea of Galilee, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. This happens all the time. Crowds gather around Jesus. They wanna see Jesus do what only Jesus can do. And it says, then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet Everybody say desperate. He fell at his feet. Fell at his feet and he pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she was getting worse. Everybody say desperate. Instead of getting better, she was getting worse. Spent all that she had. It says this woman was subject to bleeding for 12 years. The, the, uh, the writer Luke, in the book of Luke, this is Mark, but in Luke, he, he kind of comments that this disease was incurable. Luke was a doctor. He's a physician. He knew what she was suffering with, and as he writes his gospel, he puts in there, it's an incurable disease that she had. It was something maybe that wasn't so uncommon for certain ladies and it was a, a, a condition that nobody had been able to figure out. Whatever this condition was, they don't really specify what it was, but some sort of bleeding condition that could not be stopped. And so in the world that she lived in, in the Jewish community, this would make her a walking pariah. No opportunity for her to be part of community. Not only had she spent everything that she had trying to get well from this incurable disease. It said she had suffered at the hands of doctors. In that world, probably this meant that they did all sorts. They didn't know, they didn't have all the medical technology we have today, obviously. And so they would probably do things to her, starve her, cut her, bleed her in other places to try to prevent or cure or do something about whatever she's going through. And in the Jewish community, 
Not only had all that been true, but now because of her incurable condition, because she's a person who bleeds unstoppably, she hasn't been touched in 12 years. She hasn't been hugged, kissed. She can't go to worship at the temple. She can't be in God's presence. She's unclean. And she's desperate. There's a term for this, um, rock bottom. And there are two types of people in this room, two types of people in the world, those who have experienced these moments and those who will one day. A moment in life where you simply know you just have no other option. A moment in life where you know you've exhausted every other way. There's nothing else I can do and I'm desperate. A moment of just desperation at the worst of times. But here's the thing about desperation. As hard as it is, as difficult as it is to go through, here's the thing about desperation. It makes us focus. Desperation makes you focus on that one thing. Desperation makes you look and see, kind of gives you that tunnel vision. Anybody ever had this moment in life? where you just had no other options. You had nowhere else to go. You had nothing else to do, but it makes you focus. And in that moment, it reveals something about you. It reveals what you really care about. It reveals where your hope is. It reveals what you're trusting in. It reveals the only thing in that moment that you're focused on is the thing that you know is the only thing that could possibly help. And I wonder what that is for any one of us in this room. When you get to that moment of desperation, you want to know something about yourself? You want to know what you hope in, what you trust in? Ask yourself, what did I do when I was desperate? Where did I go in that moment? There's all sorts of places to go. This woman chooses Jesus. Tunnel vision. Focus on him. Desperation. It reveals our deepest needs and our deepest desires. Not necessarily anxiety, not necessarily fear, not necessarily depression comes with desperation. Maybe those things come, but not necessarily. And it might not be about a physical disease for you. It might not be any, any physical thing at all. It might just be that you're, you're desperate to see God move and God work in some other way in your life right now. Maybe it's a, a family issue that's just been going on and going on and going on. Maybe it's something with your kids or somebody else that you know and love, some other friend. But y'all, there's all sorts of other stories, by the way, that surround this story. And I just think it's interesting as we look at this woman's story in Mark chapter 5, that there are several other stories. And here's a couple references to these other stories as we look through these two chapters in Mark and Matthew. And I'm not going to read all these, but here's what those references are right there. Around this story of this woman, we see several other desperate stories. A couple stories before this, we have the disciples in a boat as a storm hits. And Jesus is asleep in the boat. Y'all know this story? He's asleep in the boat and the storm comes and the disciples are freaking out. And they say to them, like, wake him up. And they're like, Jesus, we're dying. Everybody say desperate. Desperate. And all they know what to do in this moment is what? Just wake up Jesus and they just do something. You ever wake up a person when it was storming? because you were scared. Maybe you have, but you didn't wake them up thinking he might stop it. I don't know if they knew that or not, but they did. Also in these passages, we see a demon-possessed man. Jesus gets to the other side of the lake. There's a demon-possessed man, full, it says, legion of demons. Even the demons in that story are desperate. 
They beg Jesus. And by the way, every time Jesus shows up in front of demons, I don't know if you're scared of demons or whatever, and this is the time of year where people start thinking about that stuff. Listen, every time Jesus shows up in front of demons, it's them who are scared. And they actually beg him, Jesus, please send us into the pigs. Don't, don't drive us out. Don't send us in the pigs. Like, let us go into the pigs. And Jesus like, all right, go into the pigs. The pigs run and kill themselves. It's insane, right? Like even the demons are desperate. But then after that, the man is healed and he just begs Jesus, let me go with you, Jesus. Desperate. I want to go where you are. And then there's a paralytic carried by his friends to see Jesus in the book of Matthew right before this story, right before the woman. These friends who have a paralytic friend who can't walk, who can't get to Jesus by himself, they're desperate to get their friend to him. So desperate that they climb up on the house and they break through the roof of the house and they lower him down through just so he can be in the presence of Jesus. Maybe you're desperate for a friend. Maybe you're desperate that they would see Jesus in their life. Maybe you're, you're desperate for someone on that cross or a name you didn't even write down yet or a child or a grandparent. And then there's Jairus, the man that shows up as Jesus, right before he heals this woman, that this, this ruler shows up and it says he falls at Jesus's feet, desperate, right? For his daughter who's dying. My daughter's dying, Jesus. Would you just come and would you just heal her? And I think this woman's story is here with all these other stories for this reason. I, I don't know this to be sure, but I, I believe because of the, the desperation that we see in all of these stories that God just wants us to know this, that when it comes to our faith, your faith doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be polished. It doesn't have to be refined. It doesn't have to be distinguished. It just needs to be desperate. Like you don't have to know it all. You don't have to have it all figured out. You just have to be willing to cry out to Jesus, to come to Jesus, to be at his feet, to see him as the only answer. Like those disciples in the boat, like those friends with their friend, bringing him on the mat, like Jairus, like this woman, like the demon-possessed man. It's just, I, I just know I want to be with you, Jesus. I think that's why the story is here. Are you desperate for Jesus? That's the question I want to ask this morning. Guys, this is all throughout the Bible, by the way, not just these stories, but all throughout Scripture we see again and again, Elijah, pray desperately. David, wait on God desperately. Isaiah, repent desperately for himself and his people. Daniel, persevere desperately in Babylon. Esther, trust God's providence desperately. Abraham, believe his promises desperately. Moses, being desperate for God's guidance. Solomon, being desperate for his wisdom. Paul, being desperate for his resurrection. I want to read you Paul. This is Philippians 3. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. This is desperate talk right here, guys. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Tunnel vision, focus. What, is, what does Paul want? He says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. He's just saying, I don't care about anything else. I don't want anything else. I don't need anything. You know what I need? I need to know Jesus. And I want to know him so badly that I'll suffer with him if I need to. So that I know what it's like to know Jesus. And so that I may attain, he says, by any means possible, what? The resurrection from the dead. That's what I want. At the end of the day, if you get the resurrection from the dead, guess what? You got everything. And if you have that, you have, don't have that, you have nothing. That's what we need. And that's what Paul is like. I just lay everything down for that. I want Jesus. That's where this woman was. Nothing else. I need him. And so, are you desperate like this woman? Let's go, let's go back. Verse 27. It says this. It says, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Uh, Matthew and Luke actually comment that she just touches the fringe of his cloak. The edge. Like the very back, the very bottom. Like just... Just that, just that right there. Just like, just a little whatever, right? Probably crawling on the ground. By the way, again, breaking the law. It says there are people all around. She's not supposed to be near people. She's not supposed to be touching anybody, especially not this rabbi. And she just gets behind him, probably let him kind of pass by, and she's just thinking, I need him. I want to touch him. I want to be where he is. I know I can't touch him, and I don't want to touch his arm. I don't want to, like, maybe he can't touch me. I just want to touch his cloak. Maybe that'll work. I think the reason Matthew and Luke put that in there, that she just touches the fringe, is because some of us need to hear this this morning. That again, if your faith isn't perfect, if your faith isn't distinguished, if your faith doesn't have it all together or have all the answers, maybe you just have a fringe faith. That's all Jesus is asking for. Just a fringe faith. And when I say fringe faith, I don't mean it's not authentic. I don't mean it's not genuine. I think a fringe faith might be the most genuine faith there is. A fringe faith that goes, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. You think she knew what was going to happen in this morning? I think she had hope. I think she knew who he was. I think she'd seen and she'd heard the stories. And she's just, I don't know. I just need to touch the fringe. I just need to get near him. I just need to be around where he is. Listen, fringe faith in our lives, it might just look like this. Maybe it's just, I've never prayed before, but I just want to pray. I just want to ask God something. I don't know what's going to happen. I just need to, I just need, I, I believe he can do something. Maybe it's just believing that whatever sickness or suffering you're going through, that Jesus is the only answer to it. Maybe it's just talking to a brother or sister that you need to have a conversation with. Maybe it's just showing up this Thursday night and go, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who's going to say what or where that's going to go or what this is going to look like, but I got fringe faith. I can step into that and just go, God, please do something. Maybe it's just you go, oh, you know what? I just want to start reading this for myself. I, I don't know it all, and maybe I won't even understand it all, but I, I'm going to start, and I want to see what it says to me. That's fringe faith, and that's real faith. Just to be in a place where you go, I don't know, but I know Jesus, and I want Jesus, and I want to be where he is. Maybe it's just today, repent of your sins and trust in him for salvation. Because guess what? Saving faith is fringe faith. 
Saving faith is free. It's not that you got to know it all. It's not that you got to figure it all out. It's not that you got to be Martin Luther and have 95 theses. It's just simply Jesus is the only way to be saved. I want him. He can forgive me of my sins because he died for them and he rose again. If you got faith in that today, that's fringe faith. And you can come to him and be saved. We're all there. We all need that kind of faith. Just a fringe faith to get where Jesus is because he's drawing us to himself. Fringe faith is the kind of faith that Jesus loves. And he says to this woman, so verse 32, let's start there. Or go back to verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Verse 31, you see the crowd of people. You see the, you see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, still desperate, right? Still desperation, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, it's the only time Jesus uses that word in the Gospels, daughter. Isn't that cool? Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Your faith has healed you. Not fantastic faith. Not all-encompassing, understanding, fabulous faith. Not phenomenal faith. Fringe faith. Desperate faith. She didn't know what was gonna happen or how this was gonna play out. When your faith, listen, whether your faith is great or small, here's the point. It's not about the one who has the faith. It's about the one our faith is in. It's about him. And, she, and he says to her, your faith has made you well. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. Y'all, we know who Jesus is. If you've been here for any amount of time, you've been going to church for a little while in your life, you know who Jesus is. You know what Jesus can do. You've read the stories and you know what he's leading you to. Last week we talked about obedience. You know what God's word says. We know where he's leading. You know what he's calling us to do. And I just think sometimes, especially in the American church, it's not that we have a, a direction problem, like we don't know where to go. We don't know how to follow Jesus. We don't know where, it's that we have a desperation problem. We're not desperate to see him. We're not desperate to know him. We're not desperate to feel his power and see him work in our lives or the lives of those around us. We're not desperate for our friends. We're not desperate for our neighbors. We're not desperate for our family. We're not desperate for our own souls. We're desperate to know the score yesterday. We're desperate for some things. But I don't know if we're desperate like this. I don't know if we have that kind of fringe faith. I don't know if we have faith at all sometimes that we're not seeking after the one who has everything that we need. Because here's the problem. We think we already have what we need. We think we know the answer. Sometimes I think, goodness gracious, we think we can program the presence of God. How arrogant of us to believe that it's anything other than desperation that pleases God. Desperate faith to look to Jesus for who he is, to see him and know him and love him. We, we, we come up with these five-point plans for our lives. These people in these stories, they had a two-point plan. Be desperate, get to Jesus. That was it. I don't know much. I don't know anything at all, but I see him. And I want to be where he is. I want to know him and I want to feel his power and I want to see him work in my life. 
Some of us showed up last Sunday night and we, we felt that Sunday night. We prayed and we fell on our faces and we sung to him and we said, God, we're desperate for you and that's what we want for this church. That's what I want for this church. That's what I want for the church that we would be a desperate people, not a people that has all the answers, not a people that has it all together, not a people that has to wear a mask, not a people that just smiles and says, how are you doing? A people that is desperate for Jesus and his power and his presence in our lives. A people that will run to him or crawl to him if we have to. Desperate faith. And we make plans. But plans fall through, you know? You ever had a plan fall through? Yeah, obviously. Guys, we plan for success, we plan victories, we don't plan sickness. We don't plan pain. We don't plan depression. We don't plan for our kids to be wayward and rebellious. We don't plan for our friends to run away from Jesus. We don't pray. We don't plan for our parents to, to get sick. We don't plan for our nation to become godless and violent. We plan mountaintops. Life is full of valleys. Desperate faith is what we're left with when our plans go to hell. Desperate faith. It's just Jesus in that moment. Focus. See him. Go to him. Pray to him. Fall on your face and just get to him. And it's right there in that valley. Right there in that valley. That Jesus can give you a gift an unforeseen, terrible, wonderful gift called desperation. Where he's all you see. So Jesus asked, who touched me? A couple things on that. One, lots of people were touching him. Right? And the disciples comment, Jesus, how are you going to ask us who touched you? It said the crowd was pressing on him. Literally hundreds of people are touching Jesus. And he asks, who touched me? Why? Because one person touched him with faith. And I just want to ask this question this morning, as a lot of us are in this room near Jesus. Why are you here? just like those crowds were around Jesus. Why were they there? Why are you here? Are you here to sing the songs? Are you here just to see your friends? Are you here just because this is what we do on Sunday mornings once or twice a month? Or are you here because you have faith and you wanna see Jesus and know him better and experience his power in your life? Are you here with fringe faith? Are you here for some other reason? Lots of people were there touching Jesus and only one got the question. Somebody touched me and it was different because there was faith. And two, maybe he was genuinely, there's kind of debate about this. When he asked that question, who touched me? He might've been genuinely kept in this moment by his father, God, from, from knowing the answer to the question. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Maybe he really did know it was more rhetorical. I don't know. Scholars kind of debate that. I don't think that's the point. I think whatever the case, 
Jesus asked this question, who touched me? Because he wanted to give her an opportunity to step forward, an opportunity for her desperation to become her adoration of Jesus for her grief to turn into his glory in this moment. Jesus is often healing people and then stepping away and running away and like not letting people know what really happened, but he stops. And you gotta imagine Jairus is there and he's like, come on, come save my daughter. And Jesus stops and Jairus is probably freaking out. Jairus is like, Jesus, come on, my daughter's dying. And he stops because Jesus knows she's about to die. And Jesus goes and heals her and raises her from the dead. Praise God, what a miracle. But he stops for this woman and he turns around and he says, who touched me? Why? Not for his sake, for hers. So that she could stand up and she could step forward and he could tell her in the presence of many witnesses, your faith has healed you. You who are unable to be touched, you who are unable to enter the temple, you who are unable to be in the presence of God, you are healed because you're in the presence of God. Jesus heals this woman. Because her faith, her fringe faith. Trials and pain and sickness and suffering and fear, all of these things can lead us to desperation. And if we will let Jesus do his work in the desperation, if we will let him do his work, draw us near to him, we will see him more clearly We will love him more deeply. We will glorify him more gladly than we ever have before. Listen, there are just simply things you can learn through desperate faith that you cannot learn any other way. And that's what happened for this woman. And so Martin Luther, in the years after he came and nailed those documents onto that door of that church, uh, people began to spread the word about the things that he was now teaching, really just the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were hearing this for the first time that maybe they could be assured of their salvation just because they trust in Jesus. And that was crazy to them. And they couldn't believe what they were hearing. And so this word started to spread all around the countryside. And uh, eventually Martin Luther becomes sort of the, the subject of scrutiny from the bishops and the popes and the uh, Uh, Holy Roman Emperor himself, and they call Martin Luther in 1521, April 1521, they call him to a council at Worms, Germany, and they stand him in the middle of this council. And you can imagine a place like this packed full of the stairs of tyrants, of bishops and and church leaders and priests at that time. And they, they put him in the middle, everybody's staring at him and they give him an opportunity. And they say, Martin Luther, listen, I know you're preaching that we can be justified by faith in Christ, but we need you to stop that. And we need you to recant. And under threat of being burned at the stake for heresy, again, heresy for saying Jesus saves, under the threat of being burned alive for heresy, they say, one shot, you recant. And here's his statement. This is kind of a famous statement of Martin Luther. He says this. He says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and I will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me. Desperate faith knowing what was coming for him if he didn't turn back from the gospel because he had a burden in his heart 
that every man, woman, and child would hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for sinners, and that we are saved by faith in him. So here's the question. What burdens you today? What's your burden today? Is it a, is it a sickness? Is it a physical ailment? We wanna pray for you today. We wanna give you an opportunity to say, God, this is my burden today, and I just wanna be at the feet of Jesus, and I just wanna see his power in my life today. Is it a storm that you're going through in your life? Is it a physical need? Is it a relationship? Do you just need forgiveness of sin? Are you burdened by a guilty conscience today? What has God laid on your heart? Maybe you're just burdened for the church, that God would come and send revival amongst us. Maybe that burdens your heart as you see the world that we live in, and it is just a desperate faith that you have this morning. Whatever that is, Here's what I wanna invite you to do. I want you to, I wanna invite you to come and pray with me this morning. Cause I got a burden on my heart that we would see Jesus at work in and amongst us in our lives. That we would stop pretending that this is some kind of game or some kind of show and that we would show up every single week and throughout the week asking, begging Jesus to work in our lives, through our lives, around our lives, and in his church, in this world. And I'm gonna pray for that. And this morning, if you have any burden in your life, I wanna invite you. You can pray right there at your seat. You can come forward. Pastor Scott's gonna be down here. He actually has, uh, we, we have olive oil this morning. If you want prayer for a physical healing in your life, he will pray for you. The Bible says, let the elders pray with you with oil and that we would be glad in God and his will for our lives. Uh, Miss Becky Foy is gonna be up here as well. If you're a lady and you would just like her to pray with you, I will be over here, I'll pray with you, or you can just come down and kneel for whatever burden you have this morning. Are you desperate to see God work? And are you willing to step forward and confess your desperation today? Are you willing to admit you're desperate. If you are, just come. Just come. Just come with fringe faith. Whatever your faith looks like, however that looks in this moment, however that looks this morning, just come. Let's pray together. As we sing, just come. Fringe faith, desperate faith, come.